Every day, new technologies shape our lives without us even knowing. How do these forces affect the livelihoods of everyday people? What can we learn from their interaction at a global scale? And most importantly, how can we harness these to be a force for good? In this episode, I'll be focusing on these themes while discussing ex-Verizon senior staff turned professor Mike Driscoll's career in technology. Spending nearly 30 years at Verizon and now professor of business and technology management at NYU Tandon, Mike brings a world of experience from the past and present of innovation. Tonight, prepare to see its future. And tonight, I'd like to welcome Mike Driscoll. How you been, Mike? You doing well? Good, Frank. How are you? I'm doing really well, and it's honestly a, a real honor to have you here. It's I've had a wonderful time getting to know you over the years, and I really want to just open out with a kind of just right right out of the box kind of question. How did you end up at Verizon? What what kind of was your story, and how did you end up moving to that place? All, all right, Frank, it's, it's not much of a story, but I had graduated from high school uh, in June, as most of us do, you know, graduate in June. And um, college wasn't really um, going to be uh, part of my next steps. Um, just, you know, family reasons. I, I come from a large family, um, the oldest of five, etc. Uh, so I was reading the paper on Sunday, uh, pretty much after graduation, high school graduation. I was working in a ShopRite supermarket, you know, during high school and everything. And there was an ad, uh, New York Telephone, for looking for uh, telephone operators. So I, and it was, uh, you apply um, in person in, in White Plains, New York. So I went down to White Plains, 10 County Center Road, and I applied. And about two weeks later, I got a call to take a test. And um, I started um, July 13th, 1987. So 32 years ago, about, uh, you know, two weeks ago. So, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's really the story of how I ended up in, you know, what is now called Verizon. But I started with New York Telephone and New York Telephone, uh, just a little history. Back in, in 1986, uh, there was a, a ruling and it's similar now. Um, AT&T was declared a monopoly. Um, MCI was a telco company that was trying to get into the long distance business. And Judge Hal Green at the you know federal level, not the Supreme Court, but he ruled that AT&T was a monopoly and they had to break up. So um, New York Telephone had to take back their local traffic, all what we call the baby bells. And that's how I was hired because it was a great need now to hire for New York Telephone, New England Telephone, Bell of Pennsylvania, um, Chesapeake and Potomac, Southwestern Bell, et cetera, all the baby bells. And, and that's how I was hired. Ironically, again, throughout the years, what happened was New York Telephone merged with New England Telephone and they became 9X. And then down, you know, in Philadelphia and Virginia, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, they, all the Bell systems combined into Bell Atlantic. Then 9X merged with Bell Atlantic, which became Bell Atlantic. And then Bell Atlantic merged with GTE um, and we became Verizon. So it kind of went full circle. Uh, but that's how I, um, you know, I just read an ad in the paper. They were looking for telephone operators, and I started as a, a telephone operator. Um, four one one. Nobody, nobody really dials four one one anymore. It's still around, um, but it was completely, you know, disrupted by smartphones and search. But that's how I started um, in uh, July thirteenth, nineteen eighty seven. Well, you know, it's from small beginnings come great results. So, I mean, 
I think it's really amazing to have you start from this uh, really entry level position, really just grow from there. And what was it like just having those the company remerge with other parts of itself? How how did you kind of how were you treated in those situations? How did your position change? How did your role change as being such a someone who had been with New York Telephone for as long as you were? Yeah, so you know, I began with New York Telephone, and actually, basically, like 1989, it became 9X, um, right around 1990. And um, you know, the mergers, you know, happen, you know, quite often. I, I think it's been Verizon now, probably for at least, let's see, the GT merger, probably um, 15 years. So the mergers came fast, and what happened was, um, I, I was, um, I began as a call center operator, telephone operator, and I was, um, I had really nice managers who were willing to um, promote me and give me opportunities. And so I went into the management role and, for example, in New York Telephone, I had, you know, responsibility, you know, for New York itself. So, you know, between, seriously, we had an office in Southampton on 55 Windmill Road. The building's still there, but we had a call center there all the way up to Buffalo. And so I was involved as a manager from Southampton up to Buffalo. And then when we, ex, you know, when we merged with New England Telephone, my um, responsibilities travel-wise and, and just work-wise became from Bangor, Maine, all the way, you know, again to to Buffalo, for example, or or down to Olean, in New York, which is near the um, you know Pennsylvania border. Um, so so it just with every merger, just that your scope of responsibility and your scope of territory expanded. How are the travel expenses? Um, I really racked up uh, the travel. Um, I'm a I'm a lifetime platinum Marriott member, um, <laughs> and you, you know it was just part of the business so i traveled almost anywhere in you know up and down the east coast i i've been you know all through maine you know up you know down through west virginia um i've pretty much been been everywhere um on the east coast wow that's that's amazing experience I, i've only uh personally been down to florida and up to vermont and that's about the range of where i've been what would you say was your favorite part of the east coast um favorite part um there were so many, you know, going through, um, I actually was in West Virginia and had to go to West Virginia. And I, I traveled with, with um, basically one or two other folks. Um, so I always had, you know, two other people with me just because we did had different responsibilities. And it would save, you know, when we were doing projects or cutovers. So the three of us actually left West Virginia. We were in Clarksburg, West Virginia. And we had to go um, to Richmond. And we went through... Um, we went through the Shenandoah mountains and it was just absolutely amazing. Um, you know, the, the beauty of that. And so we always, you know, tried to take in, um, the, the scene. So I, I would say that Shenandoah mountains were, um, were the, were the, the highlight of, of that. Wow. I honestly have never been in it. Sounds like it was a really beautiful place. And uh, during your travels, did you ever run into any kind of characters like a, that might be a little bit different, you know, that are story worthy? Um, you know, I just met, um, you know, it was, it's wonderful, the diversity, um, you know, people in Maine, people in West Virginia, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker, you know, even like upstate New York, Buffalo, you know, down to Long Island, there's always different, uh, 
accents, dialects, um, like, you know, people can tell that you're from New York, you know, when I, when I was, you know, working in West Virginia. Um, but it was just so nice to take in the different cultures um, and the different diversity of all the places. It was just, it was always nice um, to learn, to learn about the, the different, um, the different areas and the different cultures. And on the topic of learning, like how, how much did you have to learn when you swapped from your originally being like a call operator to now being a manager? What was the learning like for that? Well, uh, what happened, so I, I was a telephone operator and again, I was, I was very fortunate. I, I, part of it is on you and part of it is your managers and it was really coming in on time, showing up. Um, you know, what we would call plug in to the board, you know, plug, you know, which is the computer at the time and, you know, be nice to the customers. You know, I was, you know, customer facing. So, you know, I, we would do approximately 800 to a thousand calls a day. So I was touching, you know, 800 to a thousand customers a day looking for information. So I was trying to satisfy, you know, on average, a thousand customers a day. And that was their impression of New York Telephone. And so, and they would observe you. They would, you know, you know, they would observe your calls like live. The managers would, you know, remotely observe you to make sure you were doing the right thing. And, and so I was given an opportunity um, by the call center manager. Her name is Aneka Sparrow. And uh, she said, you know, would you like to go down work in Manhattan. I was actually in Peekskill, New York working and um, I said, sure. So I, I was able to go down to um, 38th Street, um, 240 East 38th Street as an acting manager. So what they do at in the, what they do still do in Verizon um, is that they make you an acting manager You're on probation and they make sure that you can do the job and you can manage people correctly, etc. Um, so that, you know, I was able, I was managing people, managing projects traveling and this and also this is where the education came in also i you know again i only had a high school degree and if i wanted to go further in the company you know i needed a, a associates or bachelors etc so i went to school at night to you know first get my bachelor's degree just to first touch on this growth experience as a, as a manager being able to really see the, the company in a lot of different levels what was uh what would you say were the key personality traits that allowed you to really succeed in the role you had been offered the chance to pursue? It's a cliche, but you have two ears and one mouth. And I was young at the time. I was in my early 20s. Um, and I kept my mouth shut and my ears open. And I listened to the people that you know, the folks that were there for 20, 25 years, and I can name them all. And, you know, they would call me the kid. And I just was positive and, you know, really just kept my mouth shut and listened and learned. Um, that was a key attribute, um, just to learn and just be respectful um, to those people ahead of you. Um, and, and that, that's what I did. I was always positive, you know, willing to learn, willing, you know, I never complained, you know, the hours were, you know, some, you know, some days we would work like a seven to three tour and the other days we would even work overnights, um, a lot of overnights. So you just, uh, kept positive. Right. And so you would say that it's definitely listening and always keeping a positive attitude. And I, I think that holds true for a lot of things and especially just, being able to do the customer service side of things, which is really quite difficult. And it just 
plays very well in being a manager. You got to keep your team motivated. And I want to actually jump on to your movement from a call operator to manager. What was that jump like for you? What was the kind of culture shift, so to speak? Um, well, in terms of culture, you know, the culture at Verizon um, has always, you know, stayed the same, you know, for the, even the last 30 years. It's always about accountability, integrity, respect, and performance excellence. And that's been ingrained from 1987, you know, up to, up to now. Um, you know, when when I when I retired from Verizon, that was always the culture. So it was more of like I was a single contributor as a you know a telephone operator. Again, you know, I had customers; it was my responsibility. Then when you went into management, you had the responsibility for a team of people. So so it, you know you still had to focus on the customer, but it was it was. Um, it was more of managing people now. That was the big difference. But in terms of the culture, um, it was always accountability, integrity, respect, and performance excellence. Okay. And more so, like, how, how did your relationship shift with the people who worked with you before? You were originally the kid, but now you're, now you're this manager of the people who you work with. What was that like for you? Um, it, it, was, it was good. I, I was managing people older than me. And you have to earn their respect. And the way I did it was to be hands-on. I would work holidays with them. If there was like a, uh, if there was work going on during the overnight, I showed up. I was really with my team. And that really gives you a lot of respect. Um, holidays, especially if people, I mean, we were 24 by seven, uh, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days uh, a year operation. And the people who are working holidays, you know, go in to the office and visit or call them. Say, hey, I just wanted to, you know, wish happy Thanksgiving. You know, how's everything going today, et cetera. It's that um, personal touch um, to let them know that you do care and that you're part of the teams, especially like the overnights. I mean, I could have stopped doing overnight work, et cetera. But if my team is there, um, you know, I'm going to follow them. So th that's how, you know, that's the respect. Quite candidly, I saw f some folks come in who were like, I'm the manager, you, you know, listen to me, et cetera. It's more of a servant leadership. You know, there goes my team. I better follow them. So it's nearly, it's you're a boss or you're a leader. And I, you were definitely of the leader category, being someone who brings your team with you, doesn't just go forward and drag your team along. And I, I think that's, that's something that's really important for people to understand in just in any situation. And now I, I, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and ask you just what was it like going to night school for college as well as working this managerial job? What was that kind of dynamic like for you? It was um, challenging. You really have to have the support of family, um, spouse. Um, it, it's, a, it's what I would call short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. And I wasn't the only one doing it. Um, I have, you know, classmates um, who I went to school with. And, you know, so you have to have that support group also. Um, you're not alone in that. There were a bunch of us going to school at night, whether it was Verizon or IBM or Con Ed or City of New York, um, you were all in it together and you all helped each other. Um, but yeah, I went to school night, weekends, a lot of weekends. I was I was very fortunate to go to uh, what we call weekend college. So it was like Friday nights, all day Saturday and all day Sunday. Um, 
every other weekend. Um, that's how I did my um, my bachelor's. So um, I was fortunate to 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 have that week in college available that that Fordham made available. And um, what did, what did you study there? Um, my undergrad, my my bachelor's of arts is a, I was a double major in economics and finance, but the economics uh, chairperson Andrea Scott Rom, long retired these um, folks are long retired. She called me and she said, "Could I please you know graduate?" with the BA in economics rather than a BS in finance. I think she was looking for the numbers and I absolutely agreed because all I needed was a piece of paper um, you, to get to the next level. If you wanted to um, be promoted in, in Verizon, and, and again, you want to be promoted, there's minimum requirements. So I started as a first level manager um, to, you know, to get to the second level, you needed a, a bachelor's degree. So I just needed that piece of paper that said, yeah, I, I've accomplished this. I do have a bachelor's degree um, and they paid for everything. You know, they, they paid for, you know, 100 percent of, of my tuition. So that started my my bachelor journey. Um, and then I went on, I took a break and then I shopped around to find out the best fit for a master's um, program, my MS. And I was uh, lucky to find um, Polytechnic uh, University, which is now called New York University Tandon School of Engineering. But Brooklyn Poly had a program where you would go on Thursday nights and all day Saturday. And, and that's how I, I received my um, master's in uh, technology management. And then I took a little break and then I did the same thing with my MBA um, Thursdays, Fridays and, and Saturdays. Um, my MBA, the concentration is in technology management and innovation, but I did all three degrees. Um, I, I got my MBA in 2010, earned my MBA in 2010. Verizon paid 100% of it. Um, and that's one of the perks. Um, they'll pay for anyone. You know, they'll pay any tuition reimbursement. You just had to do it out of hours. So you couldn't, you know, I couldn't go to school during the day. Um, I had to make sure I, I went nights and weekends. Congratulations to you, first of all, to be able to do that. It's not an easy feat. And I'd also like to ask you, what was what was it like in the interim between your getting your bachelor's and getting your master's? Did you feel you learned more maybe technological skills in that interim? Like what, what was your life like after you'd gotten a, a quote unquote break from having a education alongside a job? What was, what was that interim period like for you? Well, when I, when I graduated with my bachelor's, it was 128 credits and I, you know, I needed a break. Um, I needed some me time. I needed some family time. So um, I made sure to take care of that. And then, you know, I received more and more responsibility at work. Um, and, and again, in parallel, it, you know, the phone company was expanding. Technology was expanding in terms of, um, you know, New York Tile, 9X, um, Bell Atlantic. Um, it, it, so my, again, responsibilities expanded accordingly. Um, instead of covering, uh, for example, 24 um, switch networks um, in New York, New England, there were another 28, you know, Pennsylvania, Maryland, DC, Virginia, and, um, and West Virginia. And then when we merged with GTE, it was Texas, California, and Florida. So um, again, it was, you know, I had my weekends free. You know, I, I, I had my weekends free. Um, and then I said, all right, 
I probably I probably took four years off um, before I had my MS, and then took probably another four years off before I got my bachelor's. But it took me, oh my goodness, it took me uh, eight years, nine years to get my bachelor's. The 120 credits was real rough, um, and then a master's at MS is only 36 credits. And then the MBA was, I think, 54 credits, but I was able to transfer uh, like 12 credits from my MS into my MBA. So that made it, you know, a little less credits to to take. But the bachelor's, the 128 credits was the, was the toughest part. Um, then doing 36 and basically another 36 for an MBA was was pretty um, a lot less um, intense for me. Over the course of your kind of education as or formal education, what would you say were the, the main things you really learned about? Like you said, you did economics and you also studied finance while you were there. And you also then moved on to do technology management and innovation. What, were you, what would you say were the general topics covered in each of the curriculums? What would you say was the things that really resonated with you? Um, well, in under, undergrad, it's basically the core you know, I had to take all the core, um, you know, as it, as it exists today, your, your sciences, your languages, um, philosophy, history. So I was really glad to get that um, educational foundation in terms of my undergraduate degree. And um, you'll learn those, you know, all about the, the what we would call the core courses. And then with my MS in technology management, that's where I really started understanding the trends and understanding how to manage technology and emerging technology. And then the MBA was a, a, a little parallel, a little bit more intense on, on those subjects, um, a deeper dive into global innovation and how to manage a global team. Um, so that, that was really the three pillars of, of my educational experience. I see. On on the topic of just this innovation and the world changing and improving technology that you studied, how did Verizon improve its technology? Like, how did its technology change over the years? Oh, sure. So, um, I actually started um, in the call center, um, and it was paper records. Like, you know, it was. Um, if you were absent, you drew a red line on this sheet. It was called an E199 sheet. And then I was fortunate to, to when I when I became a manager to work on actually um, the computer systems that we implemented first implemented, and that was on modems. Um, so I knew how to do modems and configure modems. And then we went from modems to Wellfleet routers, and from Wellfleet routers we went to Cisco routers. So I was at a young age, able to grow up with that technology, you know, how the technology um, transitioned from basically paper to modems to, you know, to routers um, and the different protocols, SIP protocol, for example. Um, in terms of the overall company, well, uh, Verizon's not perfect, but there's a reason, you know, they're, and I'll give you a comparison quite candidly. Um, Verizon's okay. Uh, the stock price is good, gives good dividends because Verizon, the leadership understands what's next. Um, you know, how do you create the future? So I transitioned from 
a wireline company, you know, uh, copper pay phones, coin, coin phones. Um, you know, coin phones were a multi-million dollar business. I mean, if you were a coin collector, you were making again back in 1987 889 the ones who would empty out the coins in the coin phones they were making six figures they were making over a hundred thousand dollars and there was a huge department and then again technology came um wireless smartphones or not even smartphones flip from wireless phones and next thing you know there was no, no need for the coin phone so verizon you know if you were a coin collector and didn't transition to the new technology well you were out of a job so Verizon has always been able to position itself um, according to the technology. There's been some bumps in the road, um, but the transition, again, when I started, it was 100% wireline revenue. And then, you know, when we when we did wireless, um, it changed to now where it's um, 85%, probably 87% wireless revenue down to you know 15 12 percent now wireline and, and so that's the transition that verizon has made with the technology and now the next step they're, they're all in on 5g 5g wireless that's going to be the next thing whereas at&t they're, they're doing 5g but they're also content you know time warner um they're they're more content also verizon chose not to be a content provider they want to be the transmission for that content um and um, I'll give you a kind of a bad example. Um, Frontier Telecommunications, um, the old Rochester Tel, they never changed to wireless. Their whole business model has been landline. And as a result, right now, their stock price today is $1.31. And we actually sold the wireline business in Florida, Texas, and California to them. And it really hasn't been a, a, a good um, it hasn't been a good stay at Frontier. Um, a lot of people have been laid off. And again, you know, a stock price of $1.31 versus a stock price today of Verizon of $57.08. There's a big difference. So I was very fortunate to have leadership who understood the technology trends and how to get in front of it and how to, you know, capitalize on it. On, on the topic of technology and just trends, what do you see are going to be the most valuable technical skills during 2019 and really kind of moving forward in this next five-year window? Well, you have to understand the trends. You know, you have to understand what's coming and you play a role in it, whether it's a project manager, whether it's a data analyst, whether you're a programmer, a coder, there's always going to be a place for you as long as you have an understanding of the technology. Um, for example, and, and, and has some grasp of it. Like, for example, we, you know, we have the autonomous things, you know, self-driving cars. We're going to have drone deliveries. UPS announced it last week that they're going to start doing drone deliveries. Um, robotics, uh, again, in, in like Amazon in their, um, in their in distribution centers, a lot of robotics. Um, so you have to understand where the trend is and how to, uh, again, get in front of it. Again, the coin phone analogy is just perfect. I mean, a multi-million dollar business that was disrupted. So you saw the decline in your coin phone revenue or even actually in your coin phone unit, you know, your coin, your, your coin phones itself. So if you didn't, if you weren't aware of that declining trend and understood that, oh, look, there's the wireless revenue, all of a sudden this wireless, wireless is growing. If you don't jump, 
if you're not willing to make the jump, then you really are going to lose your job. Um, and uh, the, thing, the biggest factor is you need to change. If you're not willing to change and, and disrupt yourself, you, you're, you're really not – you're really going to – you're at risk of really losing your job and, and being left behind. Um, but I, I would see the technology such as, you know, autonomous things, um, AI-driven development, meaning like we have smartphones now. Well, they're going to become smarter. Um, you know, AI, you know, artificial intelligence is going to be into our smartphones, into the apps, smarter apps, smarter smartphones, um, uh, in um, cloud to the edge. So you have all these um, internet of things. You all have these smart connected devices, um, you, you know, your Nest, your, your door, your your refrigerator, everything, you know, is, is controlled, everything, internet of things, smart connected devices. Well, if we don't get cloud computing to the edge of this, if we don't get the cloud closer to these internet, these smart connected devices, we're going to have a lot of latency issues and we'll be back to the way we were with modems and dial up. So that's a big, um, that that's a big technology trend that's going on. And of, um, I would also say blockchain and not so much the crypto, but the decentralized databases of, of what blockchain is is bringing. Yeah, and, and just if you could, could you explain both cloud computing and uh, blockchain technology? Yeah, so so blockchain um, blockchain is um, decentralized um, digital um, database that's decentralized where everyone can add to it. Um, and and there's three key questions. So b basically, um, you have the whole client server model. You know, that's the foundation of um, TCP IP. So you have the client and you have the server. So where does the, and, and it's kind of a flawed uh, architecture. And again, it's not for me to second guess or others to second guess. This is the way the technology was developed. But the data, our data isn't with us. It's with the server. It's not with the client. So, and again, I don't, you know, nobody pays me for my data. It's out there. It, it's it's out there. Okay. When you go on Facebook, you know, Facebook is spying for free. I always joke. We don't. I don't pay for Facebook, but if I'm on Facebook, it's spying for free because my data is going to the server. I don't have my data. Blockchain has the potential to um, change that model where the decentralization of the server will actually have our own data. We'll have our own data um, with the blockchains. So there's three key questions that you really need to ask if you're um, in business. You know, what's going to be your new value proposition? You know, how are you going to provide value to the customer in the blockchain environment? Do you make the blockchain public or private? And what incentives do you have to offer for people to join your blockchain because there's going to be so many and is it a is it going to be a disruption to the airbnb to the ubers uh, of the world with this um, decentralized technology the jury's out um but i'm fascinated to see what happens with it and i again i'm not talking about the crypto i know facebook and libra but i'm really talking about the the, the decentralized um digitized database decentralized digital database which blockchain technology is in, in terms of the cloud well ag again um with um, more storage, faster chip speed, cheaper storage, um, instead of everyone having their own data centers. Um, and it's a fascinating story. 
what, what Amazon did. Amazon had their own data center and they built it up. They built it up for the holiday rush. They always had, you know, they had to make sure that everyone could access the Amazon, you know, site. Um, so their network utilization was probably like 99%, you know, November, December, everybody's, and this is years ago, everybody's, you know, everybody's at Amazon, their customers, and make sure, you know, they're, they're able to access the website. All of a sudden, come January, their network utilization, their servers and their data centers, probably 40% being used. The other ones are just going to shut off. They don't need them. But they had to size the data center for their, you know, their largest capacity, which is November, December holiday season. So Bezos and his team, they're like, oh, well, what can we do with this, you know, extra, you know, extra data set, you know, um, servers that we have? Oh, okay, well, let's lease it. And that's how Amazon Web Services came about. So, you know, an online bookseller, which is what the, the original business model of Amazon was, what it turned into be AWS is there, you know, I know they don't publicly, you know, um, cite their their revenues, but you know, AWS is, is their number one revenue profit maker. So I just find that an amazing story. So you have this cloud computing. I mean, the cloud is, you know, they call it the cloud. Where Where is your service now? Well, they, they can be anywhere in the cloud. Um, there's, you know, companies don't have their own data, you know, especially small companies, they don't have to have, um, they don't have to have their own data center. And this, this actually, um, as you know, Frank, this, this was the whole, you know, really, enabled startups to occur because back in my day, I had no chance to do a startup. I might've had an idea, but I needed servers. I needed power. I needed electricity. I needed space. Now you're at your computer, you go to AWS credit card, get some AWS credits and you can, you can have your own company. So it's just been an amazing transformation, um, uh, you know, of cloud um, computing, which I'm, I'm fascinated about. It's it's a very interesting field. Uh, by any chance, have you heard of the company Wasabi? No, I haven't. Their what they their whole um, idea is to be a competitor to Amazon and instead of you know how Amazon expands, it does sells consumer goods and stuff along those lines as well as the web services. What Wasabi is trying to do is it's trying to focus on the data storage and it saw a niche where it's, Amazon's business model couldn't shift from doing both consumer end kind of dealings as well as the data services. So what they did was they made sure to specialize in their data services and it allowed them to really make a lot of money and they're really an up and coming kind of company. I recently heard about them from a startup podcast from UPenn and it was very interesting to just hear about them. Oh, great. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely look them up. Thank you. I'm learning something tonight. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll link that down in the description for everybody as well. And I also just wanted to ask you, what are your hopes for the future of technology? Personally, I think we have to look at the society impact. If we have these self-driving trucks, for example, what's going to happen to the 100,000 truck drivers? Um, I think that we as a society need to understand that and care for that. Um, and I'll go forward a little more. Um, what happens if we have self-driving trucks? Well, we don't need the truck stops. Now, I've done a lot of driving on Route 80, um, Route 78, Pennsylvania, and, you know, they're very rural areas. And the, in those towns, well, the love truck stop is the main source of income, the, the McDonald's, the subway, the gas station. If we have self-driving trucks, not only will the truck drivers be 
disrupted, but also these rural towns. Now, it took basically 30 years for Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and that Lehigh Valley territory. I mean, Billy Joel wrote a song, you know, Allentown, because the, you know, the factories, you know, went out of business, um, again, overseas, etc., the geopolitical concerns. But now, after 30 years, Amazon, Target, Walmart are actually, you know, taking those um, spaces as their warehouse because it's cheaper, you know, to go down 78 into the city rather than have a warehouse in New York City. I mean, real estate alone. So it's just an amazing transportation transformation, but it took 30 years for that to occur. So hopefully the, the societal impact of you know, of AI, of autonomous vehicles, of autonomous things, that we as a society care for those who have been disrupted. It was one thing when EasyPass came along and there were no toll takers. Okay, I, I think the toll takers were transitioned into other jobs. But what do we do with like, you know, over, you know, with the 100,000 truck drivers? Um, and that's, um, that's a concern for me. So it, it seems that companies are focusing more on the masses of people to be able to market their products and make it easier for those people, but at the cost of ruining the livelihood, so to speak, of many people living in rural America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, again, that's my concern. Um, I, I use the self-driving trucks, for example. I mean, look, Frank, look what happened close to home here. Um, the yellow cabs in New York City. Okay, people come to this country and they save up enough money and they get the taxi medallion, New York City taxi medallion, and they work, you know, they work 24 hours again, seven days a week, um, and those medallions are a lot were worth a lot of money because there's a limited number. So those medallions were worth uh, close to a million dollars. They were um, seven hundred fifty thousand, eight hundred thousand dollars, and people, you know, got loans and and those those medallions appreciated. But once you paid off that medallion, then all the money you're making driving that New York City cab is yours. So all of a sudden, technology comes along, and okay, we have you know the sharing economy, and oh, okay, well we can you know do Uber, Lyft, etc., Juno, and those taxi cab medallions are now worth hundred thousand, not less. And um, it, unfortunately, you know, it's in the paper. Even last summer, um, we, we had four, three or four people actually commit suicide in front of New York City City Hall. Um, because it, it again, you're holding on to this medallion that you owe half a million on, and it's worth seventy five thousand dollars. So what do we do? Like, you know, um, yeah, it's easy to transition from a yellow taxi cab driver to an Uber driver, and many do that. But what do you do with that medallion that you still owe the bank on? You still owe the bank a half million dollar loan, and now you're not getting any fares because everybody's an Uber. So your medallion, and, and so that impact, you know, on society. Um, uh, we need to we need to care for that. I don't have the answer for that, um, but it's 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 real. Um, and and so those who are left behind, you know, what what do we do? And I actually two more questions because it seems that most of your modern tech companies have really been affecting Americans who are just coming into the country, and um, as well as just people who have been living here for generations. And I also like to broaden that question to how do you think technology is affecting companies, sorry, not companies, countries that are developing? I think global innovation is here and it's a key. Um, innovation used to occur only in the developed countries and then 
transition to the developing countries. And sometimes it always wouldn't work. Um, there's a famous example of the Ford Motor Company um, sending a, a Ford vehicle um, to India. And they thought, you know, they by you know making the car cheaper, they took out the power windows in the rear. Little did they know, because they didn't understand the culture or the demographics of India, those in India who could afford a Ford vehicle generally had a chauffeur. So the chauffeur had the power windows and the family in the back had no power windows. So uh, that is a classic example of, you know, what Ford in Detroit thought was best for India. That paradigm has changed where innovation now occurs globally, you know, in developing countries, it can occur anywhere. Um, so I'm really happy about that. And that really, um, you know, I have students from India and China who, you know, go back to India and China and are just doing, you know, just doing so well um, it, it, it back back homes, you know, starting businesses, working for companies. Um, Geo Mobile, for example, has just transformed India. So I'm, I'm glad the innovation is in a, occurring on a, on a global letter, level, no longer innovation occurring in the developing, developed country then sent to the developing country. That's all changed. I, there's also a dark side to this. And I think it's more so the the grounded companies here in America. Like you could say, Facebook nearly bas has basically incited a genocide in Southeastern Asia between a group of Muslims and the Buddhist population there. And there, there's a dark side to these technologies. What are what are some of the unforeseen dark sides that you see occurring that might be occurring in these emerging uh, economies, or that may occur as we continue to move technologically forward? Yeah, Frank, I'll, I'll bring it to a higher level. You know, cybersecurity, you know, uh, again, our power grid in this country is very antiquated. And, um, I, you know, it's, again, the blackouts that occurred, you know, recently in, in, in New York City. Yes. I, I feel that's very vulnerable to cyber attacks. And uh, again, I think that's really the dark, in my own opinion, that's the dark side of the technology, these cyber cyber attack cyber security um and so uh, again i mean look look what's going on in smaller governments um smaller towns so let's just take it at a local level um you got you have hackers like baltimore for example it's even a larger larger than baltimore what last month the hackers got into baltimore shut down all their computer systems and said if you want your data you know give us you know 100 100 thousand million bitcoin and they're also, and I'm not laughing to laugh, it happened in Baltimore, but it's happening in a lot of small towns that you, you go in, you just, you just take control of everything, these systems in towns and say, okay, you know, here's the ransom. That's occurring now. And so what's going to happen at a larger level? Is someone going to take down our whole power grid, which is very antiquated. We have not we have not modernized our power grid. Yes, we've modernized the smart home, but we haven't modernized the actual grid, our power grid. So I think that's a big vulnerability. And I know Con Ed um, is really big on cybersecurity. They have a big cybersecurity um, department and, and they're working on that. But a lot of these small towns don't have the technology expertise. And all of a sudden you send them an email, they click on the link and all of a sudden, boom, you're done. Um, so I think that's the dark side you know, um, in in my opinion, um, 
and also cyber from a global a global level. Look, look what happened today. The front page of the New York Times. You know, Russia hacked into all fifty states' elect, elect um, election systems, electoral systems. All fifty states. Um, that's on the front page of today's New York Times. So, you know, that's the whole. That's what I consider the the dark side um, of the technology. Right. First off. Guys, don't get any ideas. Please do not hold your town for ransom. I know it might seem fun, but don't, please. Second, um, as a teacher, you have a very important role to play in developing students who will be moving on into this more and more technology-based world. I, I really want to, first, I want to start with what was that shift like for you moving from Verizon or maybe not necessarily moving fully or kind of like I like to say, shifting gears, so to speak, from going from Verizon to becoming a teacher? What was that experience like for you? Sure. Um, you know, again, it was it was by accident, you know, same similar to what happened in 87 when I read this newspaper ad and said, OK, let me apply to this um this New York telephone for it to be a telephone operator. What happened was I, I graduated with my MBA in 2010 um, from NYU Tandon. Um, we had an MBA, a really good MBA program there. And when I graduated in May, about two weeks later, I was actually working in West Virginia and I was all done with school. And so now I was really, again, I managed to, ask, to answer your previous question. I always try to manage my projects and my travel according to school. So once I graduated in May, I really was, you know, really going on the road to, you know, to my, my sites and, and scheduled my cutovers that way. It's really how to manage yourself. So I was in West Virginia and I got a phone call from um, the department chairperson and I thought something happened with my degree or something. But he said, no, he said, we, we need someone to teach um, this global innovation course. He had taught it. He wasn't going to teach it in the summer. There's a lot of full-time faculty who like to spend the summer doing their research, et cetera. But there is a need for, for you know, for, for teachers of courses. So I said, ah, I don't know if I can really teach. And he said, no, I think you can, et cetera. Why don't you just try it? So I ended up in, in the summer of 2010, you know, teaching global innovation course. And kind of fell into it um, by accident and said, okay, um, you know, I'm not the best, but I'm not the worst. And they keep asking me to teach. Um, so I would teach, you know, in all of a sudden September, hey, can you teach on Saturday? So I, I was a Saturday. I taught the two classes on Saturday, the way um, NYU works, they don't still have the Saturday courses. You know, it's every other weekend, eight Saturdays, 8.30 to one, then 1.30 to six. So I was a Saturday person. I'd go in every other Saturday and, and teach my two courses. And then, um, Again, just by fate, coincidence, I was reassigned. I, no, I was assigned to Florida, which was always my dream, and they knew it. And so I cashed in a lot of favors. And, and in 2000, um, oh my goodness, five years ago, um, so it was, it was 2014, 56, 2014, I was transferred down here to Florida to, to work um, full time, you know, permanently. I always traveled to Florida. It was it was you know again part of the GT territory, and. Right around the end of 2015, I said, you know, I have 29 years. I'm okay. I became, you know, I went from the kid to being the, you know, the old guy. But nobody forced me out. I, I still had, you know, I think I had a few more years left. Was going to work on 5G. And I said, you know what, there's, I want to, I think 29 years is enough. And I, I was very, um, I grew up very poor. And, you know, Verizon, I was able to save my money, et cetera. Verizon treated me very, very well. And so I said, okay, you know, kids are off the payroll. Everything's fine. Why don't I just, you know, I'm here. This is always my dream. Let me just retire, retire early, but I'm okay. And maybe I'll go work at the public supermarket, you know, full circle, maybe. And then I got a call from, again, from the department saying, 
you know, our enrollment is booming because it really became NYU Tandon. And there's nothing wrong with poly. I'm a poly graduate also. But when they put NYU um, in place of Polytechnic University, the NYU brand really, I mean, students just really, you know, are drawn to it. And our enrollment is actually just incredible. And so they said, do you want to work full time? <laughs> I was like, and this was literally a week after I had given my notice that, hey, you know, I'm going to end on, you know, April 1st of 2016. I'm going to like just retire. I gave like four or five, six months notice. And then all of a sudden, a week later, I get a phone call from the department. I was an adjunct. I was still flying up every other Saturday to teach. I would fly up from Tampa, you know, up to up to JFK and teach and then fly back, you know, Saturday night, no problem. Um, or I come up Friday night, teach Saturday morning. Um, and they said, you want to come on full time? And I was like, Okay, so um, I'm actually now, you know, full-time faculty with the title of lecturer in the department. Um, and so I, I compromised. Um, I spend the fall up in New York and generally in the, you know, February through August, I'm here in Florida and I can go up and back and I do a lot of online also. So it was, again, an accidental transition, but I really wanted to give back. Um, I, I, I teach undergrad, grad, and online. I just really want to give back because I was very, very lucky for the career I had. Um, you know, again, starting out at 18 years old to where I am now, um, I, I'm very blessed or very lucky, I'm very fortunate. So I just want to give back. That's what, um, that's what I'm doing right now. I, wanna, I want to help people succeed. And that's really all I'm doing it for. Um, I don't know for how much longer I'll do it, but right now I'm 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 I I'm happy doing it. That's really wonderful to hear. You've had you've had a lot of just amazing experiences in your life, and I'm guessing this teaching experience has to be one of them. How would you say it's changed you? Like moving from Verizon to now moving to teaching, what was it? How did it change you, so to speak? Did it change anything you had learned at Verizon? Did it make you realize something different about yourself, realize something different about the world? Yeah, um, it was a big transition for me, quite candidly, because as an adjunct, you know, from 2010 right up to January 2016, I, I was teaching grad school. So grad school you know, is a different demographic than undergrads. You know, a lot of the grad students also are working professionals like I was going to school nights and weekends. But uh, I started, I you know, as full-time faculty, I think it's responsibility also to teach undergrad. And I teach um, this last, well, again, last fall, I had 68 sophomores, 58 juniors. Um, this semester, I have the same numbers. Um, so my sophomores will be juniors. And I call them mine because I, I really do care about them. But I needed to understand at Verizon, I was dealing with adults, peers. And I need to be, and I've learned to be a little bit more sensitive to my undergrads. Um, if you go on ratemyprofessor.com, you know, they hate me, love me, but I tended to be a little bit too condescending, not deliberately. It was just that I was so ingrained at Verizon that I forget who my audience is and I need to be a little bit more sensitive to my undergrad demographic. Not baby them, but just understand the audience that I'm not dealing with a 40-year-old person or I'm not speaking to someone 45 years old. I, I'm speaking to, you know, 19 year olds um, folks who don't have the same life experience yet. So that was a big, very candidly, and, and I was um, 
it, it took me a while to uh, adapt a little to that. Some people will get it, but I, I think I tend to be a little bit too, like, I don't know my audience and it, and it can come across condescending where I don't mean it. Um, and I'm fine. I mean, I'm, I'm okay. I, I, you know, the majority of my undergrads are okay, but I need to understand who my audience is. And, and, the, and so my sophomores and juniors, um, I, I do understand them much, much better. Have any come back to you or just have any done something that just amazed you? Like you didn't think that was possible from this kid who just, is attending university. Oh yeah, uh, I'll tell you all of them. I'm just so proud of everyone. I mean, I, again, um, 60, 70, you know, 130 la last fall. Um, I go on LinkedIn. I try to congratulate everyone. I mean, just the the progress. Um, my first undergraduate class. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, and I hope I'm not babbling. But um, last fall, um, I had two students come up to me right at the beginning of the semester. They were my sophomores. They were my juniors who are now you know, going to be seniors. And so they were in my class um, last fall. They were juniors. I knew them from sophomore year. And the two said, you know, we want to start the student club called Women in Business and Entrepreneurship. Would you be our faculty advisor? Now, again, in the School of Engineering, um, we need to be a little bit more diverse with our faculty. Um, and we're getting there. You know, again, from a student standpoint, we are 43, 44 percent of our incoming freshman class is female. Um, we need to quite candidly, um, you know, make that part, that percentage part of the faculty. So um, I said, I'll be, I'd be glad to do it. What do you need? Oh, well, you know, can we want to do a career panel? Can you reach out to the, you know, grad, you know, graduates, um, alumni? So I went back to my first class in 2016 and um, I, I sent a note out. You know, I got the LinkedIn connections, who was local, and I, I sent it out to, um, to five and all five immediately responded that they were happy to come back, etc. And I had only known them one semester because they were graduating. I, I saw them the spring semester of 2016 and they were graduates of 2016. So I only had them for 15 weeks um, and they all, all five came back and it's just been such a pleasure and such an honor to see that, that growth of my, of what, I, again, my sophomores, my juniors who now gone out you know, into industry. Some have gone academic. Some are going to PhD tracks also. And so it really, um, it it really, um, it really blesses blesses my heart and you know warms my heart. Not to sound corny, that I I see that accomplishment. Everyone's a success in whatever they do. Um, and so I love looking. You know, now I'm on again. I'm I'm not the the kid anymore. But I, I like to see the accomplishments, and I'm so proud. And I just try to add a little, you know, value to their program of studies. I, I think that really does speak to what you said initially. That it's really you've got to listen, you've got to be kind, and you've got to understand people. That you said helped you move forward in Verizon. I think that again, this just really proves your point that it helps wherever you are. And I, I know this is kind of off topic, but I you had mentioned their studies. It, could you maybe go into a little bit more detail about the program that you are participate in, what you teach, what is the material that's covered? Sure, sure. Um, well, again, at the Tan, you know, New York University Tandon School of Engineering, um, I'm in the Department of Technology Management and Innovation, and um, that's comprised of um, three sub subheadings. Um, our undergraduate is Business Technology Management. Our graduate, we have two graduate programs. One is management technology and 
our industrial engineering program is the second graduate program. So there's three programs, undergraduate, two graduate programs within um, our department. Um, industrial engineering and management technology graduate programs can also be done online. Our undergraduate in, in tandem, I think we need to move a little fast with online. There's been some debate, which is above my pay grade. Um, I know a city university of New York has a whole information systems in their school of professional studies completely online. And I think we've fallen behind that in our undergraduate at Tandon. Again, it, it may be tough to do mechanical engineering from an undergrad standpoint online, but maybe we give it a try. But if, you know, City University of New York School of Professional Studies has a whole undergrad major, 120 credits completely online, I, I think, you know, Tanda needs to, to look at that also. Um, again, it benefits um, the non-traditional students. That's my point. Um, we have the technology. Let's enable that technology for all. And, and so I, if we're doing it at a graduate level, let's do it at, at an undergraduate level too. Um, so th those are the three programs. Uh, again, from an undergraduate standpoint, business technology management is um, business technology management where, okay, well, what's the difference between, you know, your program and Stern? I, I think the program, the differentiate is you, you have the technology also. You're in a school of engineering and learning. It's a big joke, how to manage the engineers. And that's kind of, um, there goes my condescending. Um, but but we, you're on, you're learning the technology, but you're also learning how to manage the technology. So you'll learn about how to code, but you'll also learn about management. Um, and so I think that's the differentiator be between our program and others. And then at the graduate level, management technology has been around, you know, for, for, for over 35, 40 years and industrial engineering. Again, industrial engineering is, um, you know, how do you make those, you know, how are you going to make those supply chains smarter? It's with blockchain. Um, that's going to be a, a amazing proof of concept. Um, how do you, digital twins, for example, um, you know, in industry, in production lines, manufacturing, you're going to actually have a digital twin, a prototype, which is actually going to be the real time. So that's going to reduce the quality defects. So um, I think industrial engineering is fascinating um, where the technology is going with that. Right. Uh, what What is this digital twin you're speaking of? I'm sorry. Okay. I'm just not familiar sorry. myself. So, so digital twin, you, you can look it up. Um, you, you all can look it up. Um, the digital twin is with, with the technology now in, in manufacturing, you can actually create a prototype, which is exactly the same of your, as your manufacturing facility. The big, the big takeaway is when you had a lab, when you, you, it would work in the lab, but it would never work when you implemented it, it you know, in, in, in real time like so it would work in the lab and then I would go to you know 30 HP put it in the switch and it would bring down the switch but it worked in the lab with digital twins that did the digital technology will allow you to have the same exact prototype and it would be more of a proactive rather than a reactive um, in, in when you're when you're doing your manufacturing um, it's up and coming it's an emerging technology um, but for industrial engineers that's a key aspect of what you want to be involved in. If you want to, you want to know where the jobs are in industrial engineering, learn more about digital twins. I see. And just to, as an amazing skill, just for industrial engineers. Now I'd like to maybe broaden the scope a little bit and say, what would you say, you say it would be the most important to anyone, be it an engineer, be it a business person, just someone who wants to learn about technology, like what would you say is the most essential class for them to take or maybe just the most essential skill they should have as we move forward 
I think the most essential skill is being a continuous learner. And I'll, I'll give you, I'll promote three different items that you need in your toolbox. The first week of every June, you have to listen and read Mary Meeker's internet trends. Mary Meeker is industry standard in technology. She's been doing internet trends for 23 years, and I'm not saying that. The New York Times, do a, do a search on Mary Meeker, New York Times. New York Times has said Mary Meeker is you know industry standard, her technology trends. So every year, um, every June, first week of June, get yourself and and learn what the current trends are technology trends and they're fat and they're global and mary meeker is just wonderful so know who mary meeker is take a step back every march mit technology review the 10 breakthrough innovations and they're just fascinating and actually uh, the guest editor for the MIT technology review emerging innovations this year they never had a guest editor was bill gates so it, those 10 trends are just absolutely wonderful. And like, for example, Waymo, what's, what Google is doing with Waymo and the algorithm and the self-driving cars, that was one of the 10 breakthrough technologies four years ago. So again, get, getting to understand the trends and, and knowing them and getting ahead of them professionally and personally, you'll have a competitive advantage over others. The last thing, um, at the end of October, mid-October, Gartner. Now, Gartner, uh, Gartner and Forrester Research are the leading, you know, industry business research um, companies. Um, com you know, corporations. I know Verizon pays a lot of money for this research um, that analysts do business research. So, again, mid-October, Gartner comes out with the ten, um, the ten top ten strategic technology trends for 2020. This is going to happen in October. So, I, I teach all three in my classes to get that exposure to understand. Because right now, what are the hot items? You know, data analysis, data visualization. Okay, but five years is going to be something else. So, you could be the greatest, you know, data visualization person. But five years from now, something else is going to come along. Again, I grew up. I mean, I, you know, I grew up on, on in the wireline. You know, I was like the best modem. You know, Hayes modem configure. You know, around. Well, well, guess what? <laughs> There's no more modems. The, the, I, the, the modems I installed, I actually ripped out. It, it, you know, it was all. You know, it's understanding. Oh, what was the next? Well, do you want to learn the Cisco? Do you want to be CCNP? You want to learn Cisco's? A lot of people said, No, no, no. I, I like the modems. Well, you don't have a job, so you have to be continuous learning. You have to be willing to learn and take advantage of those situations. And I'm quite honestly, that's how I survived at Verizon, just always wanting to learn. And, and they're willing. A lot of people aren't willing to, to, to learn. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm happy what I'm doing. But that technology is going to change and disrupt you. And it's going to, and that's where you're going to be in trouble. Um, there's very little, like I know COBOL, I know Fortran. That's what I learned in undergrad. But that was 25 years ago. There's really not a need for Fortran and COBOL, you know, anymore. Um, so, so you have to, again, I just can't stress that enough. Um, no matter where you are in life, and don't don't be, how can I say, this? be comfortable being uncomfortable. So you gotta, so to speak, break out of your comfort zone to really be able to move forward. Yeah, again, Frank, I, I, the modem example is perfect. Oh, I was great modem. I I can install these modems. I can configure them. TTY, 2400, 9600 board modems. You know, make them communicate. Set up the modems. Okay, um, tell me where I'm going to get a job uh, in uh, 2019 configuring modems. And I was really good at it. But and I was doing really well. Got you know, with all your you know bonuses, raises. 
Well, I would, you know, then all of a sudden you, you say in this new technology, Wellfleet routers, Cisco routers comes along and networking and, and, and you know, IP, etc. cetera. Um, you have to understand, you know, and they were willing, you know, they said, do you want to learn this? I said, of course. But some people, my peers, like, no, I just, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm good with the modems. And they were, and then when layoffs occur, because as Verizon transitioned from wireline to wireless and more revenue in wireless, well, you need less people in wireline, more people in wireless. So if you weren't, weren't willing to make that transition, you were, you lost your job, basically. Um, a lot of people lost their jobs and you feel bad, but you don't lose that much sleep at night if that person wasn't willing and had every opportunity to to learn the new technology and refused. So you gotta you gotta change. And, and and I don't you know again data visualization, you know this technology we're talking about tonight. Five years from now, it's going to be different. Ten years from now, it's going to be something different. On the topic of just continual learning, are there any courses like Open Courseware or anything you could recommend or? Would you say that it's just really best to find what you enjoy and just kind of explore that? Find what you enjoy. Um, you know, I, I I know it's Linda's out there, you know, edX. Um, there's so many. You know, just find something that, you know, you're comfortable with and and, and just do it. Um, that's the thing, you know, you know, making the time. I always say, again, short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. I missed a lot of parties growing up. I missed... Um, a lot of my friends' stuff. You know, I didn't miss weddings or anything like that. But you know, I would have liked to play golf instead of going to you know Brooklyn on Saturdays. Um, but guess what? I can play a lot of golf now. And my friends who are my friends are still my friends. And not that I'm any different. I mean, they went to school, etc. They you know. But uh, there were you know I I missed some parties, but now I'm you know I. I'm making up for lost time, um, but it really is about short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. Um, that's was always my, you know, mantra as I as I was moving forward. Definitely, it's it's a good mantra because you see all these successful people nowadays, and that's the that's the only way to really make it forward. And I, I'd actually like to ask you this question. And if you if you haven't given it some thought, I'd really love to just hear what you kind of think of on the on the spot, but. You, you had a lot of experience, and I, if you could boil down everything you've learned over your career, or if you wanted to, you could create whatever course you wanted to. It didn't have to be engineering, didn't have to be business, didn't have to be anything. What would you say you'd want to create? I would create a, a course um, interpersonal skills. Um, it's not a cliche. Um, don't burn bridges. I hope I can just tell this one story. Um, again, I was probably 22 years old, 23 years old, and I had to go up to Oneonta, New York, because I was doing some training um, on this new system that we were putting in. Um, I think it was a, like the first computer-based system, CBT, computer-based training, we used to call it, and it was a snowstorm. And I, you know, I was down county, you know, uh, you know, d down in uh, downstate New York, um, and I didn't know any better. I got in my car and drove up Route 17 to, you know, Oneonta, hit Route 88, et cetera. I was lucky because there was like a New York State snowplow in front of me. I got to the Holiday Inn in Oneonta, and I walked in, and at the bar, when I went to the front desk, at the bar was like a lot of, you know, Ninex people at the time at the bar who were, the, were staying overnight for the training. Well, the manager, um, and I, I won't name her, um, but she was the manager of the Oneonta office. She could not believe that I showed up. She didn't think it was going to happen, the snow, et cetera. And it was, you know, it was 
you know, I, I probably was young and stupid, but it wasn't a big deal. I showed up. We did the training the next day because I was the only one from out of town. Everybody else was from the local Oneonta, Elmira area, basically, Binghamton. Um, she never forgot that. Well, she became a, a executive director of an organization, and she always remembered that and took care of me. Like, I always performed, but she always made, made sure, and she's the one who got me to Florida. Um, she knew that I wanted to go to Florida. So my point is um, always treat people the way you want to be treated because if you burn bridges, and again, that was, you know, I'm talking 30 years later, you know, and, she, you know, in two, again, in 2015, she always remembered what I did. And I never, I didn't report to her directly for many, many years, et cetera, but she always made sure that, you, you know, that when I did something or was involved in something, she always supported me. Um, and, and so just, uh, again, always thank people, um, be kind to people, you know, treat people with respect. Um, and, and you'll go a long way with that. Um, you really, you know, people say, oh, you're, I was too nice or something. People would say that to be, oh, you're too nice. And I wasn't looking for brownie points or anything. I just, you know, I just, was very fortunate, very happy to be in a, in a company and getting a paycheck. And um, yeah, I, I, that would be the course I, I would take, you know, just interpersonal skills, how to, how to treat people, how to conduct people with people. I think sometimes with social media and, you, you know, you might be a little bit closer to it than I am, you know, the whole, um, you know, the discourse that we have sometimes on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, I just, uh, yeah, it's just sometimes kind of sad. Um, I never had that in high school, Frank, but I see my, you know, people I went to high school with, you know, they're on Facebook just going back and forth. And I'm like, darn, I'm glad we didn't do this in high school. So I think we just need to, you know, especially in companies, you know, treat people um, the way you want to be treated. So I hope I didn't babble too much on that. <laughs> no, it was a, it was a really great point you made. And look, it, Frank, can I interrupt you? Yeah, go for it. What's up? All right. So let's talk about how we met. Okay. And it's nothing, you know, it, but it goes along the same lines. You came for an open house. I wasn't doing anything that, you know, day, you know what I'm saying? You came in on a Saturday, right? The Saturday, et cetera. So yeah. I said, well, let me show you around. I, I'm not, you know, I didn't have class actually because it was every other Saturday. So they made the open house when we don't have class. So, you know, I, I showed you around. I gave you like the tour. It wasn't a big deal. You know, you know to me, I said, yeah, let me show you. If you're willing to, you know, I'll be glad to show you around. There's no, you know, I am not nowhere. To, I'll be glad to. And that's how, you know, and how many years ago was that? Two, three? Yeah, two, I, th I think it was like two now. Two years, right? So, so you know that again, that kind of um, accidental encounter where you were just one of a, you know many who just come through the open house, and you were like, and I just I don't know really the genesis, but I just like, yeah, you want me to show you around? Yeah, let me sh let me show you, you know, I can show you this, the makerspace lab, blah blah blah. You know, just give you the five cent tour. But look at us now. You know, here we are, and I, I think that says a lot to, you know, that's where that's my analogy. That you know, I, I'm using the old Verizon one, but I think you and I, there's there's another analogy with with that. If you know, if you weren't willing to, you know, take the tour, and I, like I said, I just gave you the five cent tour, and we've, you know, we've been, you know, we've been friends, you know, ever since. Yeah, I, honestly, like, I think it's moments like that where you meet someone who's just being. You have to be willing to, to be kind to really be able to build a friendship and to be able to build very positive relationships with people. And I think that just 
having you having had done that has just positively affected my life in so many ways. And I, I hope that I can have had the same influence on you. It just I think it's just this value of being good, trying to be the best you can be and bring the best that you can to everyone you meet is just it can't steer you wrong. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, now, again, if, if there's students listening, you know, I'm not a pushover. I mean, you got to hand in your homework. You got to do your assignments. You, you know, there's an accountability aspect of, of you know, of school. You got to show up. You, you know, you got to even even at work, you know, you got to show up. And, you know, you know, if you're going to be, you know, somewhere, you got to be there. If you're going to be in class, you got to be to class. If you got the homework, the homework is due. So, you know, don't take advantage of the niceness. Um, I'll, unfortunately, you get the grade you earn. Um, I wish everybody starts with an A, and I've, you know, I wish everyone got it, you know, could get an A. Um, but again, everybody starts on an equal path. If you're not handing in assignments and you're kind of slacking off, New York City, you know, and you'll discover this in Philadelphia, you know, there's a lot of things that you want to explore. You'll have time for that, but don't lose focus on your studies. No matter how nice the professor is, you know, there's, a, there's an obligation you know, you get the grade you earn. So I just wanted to clarify that also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no problem with that. That's definitely a good thing. You can, you can turn a, a very nice teacher into a person who's going to be the, uh, <laughs> the well, poker I, in the fire. I, I really just, I do this, um, instead of playing golf, I want to teach, you know, I, I, I wanted to give back. So again, I want everyone to succeed, but you also have to meet me halfway. You know, you have to hand in the assignments, you know, you have to, you know, come to class, etc. There's deliverables that have to be met. And so I just, you know, I'm, you know, I don't enjoy giving the, you know, the B's and the C's, um, but you get the grade you earn. And there's really never been any kind of pushback because, you know, we document everything and, you know, well, you miss this, this and this, you know, if there's trouble, then, of course, there's always resources, you know, NYU and I know Penn, there's always, you know, resources available. Um, but if you just want to, you know, play Fortnite all day and all night, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's going to happen. So, yes, be nice and be kind. But, you know, there's also an accountability aspect in, in, in school as well. Definitely. You want you really want to make sure you're not enjoying the kindness and not pushing yourself to be the best. Yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> this is all good. And I, I think that this is going to be our like the final question that I always ask on all of our pod, my podcast interviews. And I, I think I'm I'm excited to hear your answer on this, but how would you define personal success? Happiness. Yeah. That's if you're happy doing what you're doing, yeah, that's personal success. If you're happy. If you're unhappy doing something, that's not personal success. If you're happy doing something, if you're not, change. And you can always change. You can. Um, no matter what your situation is, trust me. Um, I take that from personal experience. Um you know, I come from a large family. I think um, my brothers are all happy. We all do different things. Um, you know, for the most part, we get along, but I think everyone's happy and we all do different things. I have a brother who's an auto mechanic. I have a brother who's an online journalist. Um, I have a brother who works in Marshalls. Um, I have a brother who does construction um, and everyone's happy. I'm happy. They're happy. So that's how I would define personal success. Not about money. You can have all the money in the world and be, you know, miserable. Look at this guy Epstein. He's in prison right now, a millionaire, whatever the situation, you know what I'm saying? Money doesn't buy happiness. Um, I think personal success is, is, you know, is happiness. I hope that's a sufficient answer for you. I think that was a fantastic answer. It's a, it's, 
everyone's always put it their own twist on it, but you really you you gave your answer in the most pure form it could be given, I guess. Because a lot of people usually will say something along those lines, but they'll be a little bit more verbose about it. And I have to say that was one of the just loveliest answers I've heard to that question. And I really want to say thank you for coming on the show tonight. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and be able to share your experiences with everybody listening. Thank you, Frank. It was an honor. Um, and, um, you know, I know we'll, um, we'll keep going and I'll, I'll, I'll see you soon. Most definitely. And to all you listeners out there, thank you for watching. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, all of the things we discussed will have additional material you can find in the description. And if you want to watch another episode, just click the channel name and you'll be able to see all of them. If you'd like to check out our social media, we have an Instagram where we post daily motivational quotes as well as little tidbits of knowledge. The tag is at the real primary source. Thank you again and have a wonderful night.